Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What's really going on? <clears throat> Excuse me. When you sense presences or hear things when you're at the edges of sleep. When you're in altered states of consciousness, are you imagining things or could you actually be somewhere or somewhere else? What are egregores? Well, welcome to the 872nd broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Uh, coming to you live from WON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and on TuneIn.com. Uh, I am not Ben, as you know. This is our usual routine. Ben is um, not able to be with us today, kind of a last-minute thing, so we're uh, kind of seat of the pants here, so please bear with us. Anyway, uh, today we bring you an old friend on a jarring subject. If you'd like to join us on the show, call us at... Oh, I don't think we are taking calls today because of the circumstances. So no calls today, but you can send an email to paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Anthony Peake is a British author and researcher who deals with borderline areas of human consciousness. One of the world's most original thinkers, uh, he is a graduate of the University of Warwick, England, and did postgraduate work at the London School of Economics and the University of Westminster. Since his first book, Is There Life After Death, was published in 2006, Anthony has gone on to develop his own ideas together with exploring the latest areas of research in his field. His eighth book, published in 2014, is The Immortal Mind, Science and the Continuity of Consciousness Beyond the Brain. Uh, a joint prog- project with Professor uh, Irvin Laszlo, the great Hungarian researcher of quantum consciousness. Anthony's tenth book, the center of our discussion today, is The Hidden Universe, an investigation into non-human intelligences. His website, Anthony Peak, that's Peak with an E, anthonypeak.com. Anthony, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Always wonderful to talk to you, Paul, always. All right, and uh, and uh, I feel exactly the same way as you, my friend. Uh, Anthony, uh, knowing you and your brilliant insights, we're just going to throw this uh, wide open at the start and see where the discussion takes us. So tell us where your research on non-human intelligence has led and what are egregores. Am I pronouncing well, that correctly? You are egregores and egregorial. Yeah, very much. It's um, very similar to a lot of the areas you touch upon in, in your book, uh, Turning Home. And indeed, uh, I reference you in the new book because I have to thank you for attuning my mind to think, you know, there's something here to do with plasma. But I'll go back a little bit in terms of what we mean when we use the term egregores. The term egregore or egregorial, as you will know, is Greek and it means watcher. And I was quite fascinated when doing my initial research into the book. And indeed, research in a previous book I did called Opening the Doors of Perception, that I was particularly intrigued by the the, the idea of uh, the Book of Enoch and the descriptions in the Book of Enoch uh, in the Apocryphal Bible, whereby people had encounters with these beings that were known as the Watchers. And of course, as I said, watcher in Greek is egregore. And it seems that these watchers were really quite interesting characters, and they also feature um, we will know as well as in the uh, the Bible, they also feature in a, a different guise within the role of the Anunnaki um, within uh, Sumerian legends as well. But these entities appeared on Mount Hermon uh, in the Lebanon or the modern day Lebanon, and they, they mixed with human women and everything else as well. But it seems there was I thought this is an interesting trope. And I decided that this is what I would call my own model of 
entities that are non-human that seem to manifest in human societies and have manifested in human societies since the beginning of time and have been recorded since the beginning of time. And I'll give an example of just how extraordinary this is, because in the opening chapter of the book, um, I describe an extraordinary incident that took place with my own mother, whereby she had she woke up in the middle of the night in a state of sleep paralysis. And while she was in sleep paralysis, she noticed that the bedroom door was open. She then noticed three spindly fingers come round the bedroom door and this little entity with large black eyes looked at her, blinked and dodged back. Now, my mother subsequently developed um, Alzheimer's. So this is something intriguing. It intrigued me here. Was it something about her doors of perception being open by the destruction of the amyloid plaques in her brain, by by the uh, the destruction of her microtubules, by the amyloid plaques within her brain? And it was opening up the doors of perception. It was stopping the brain acting as what Henri Bergson would call, call an attenuator, that the brain takes out information. So under these states, people's minds get broader and they perceive a broader based reality. But what intrigued me was that soon afterwards, I discovered that um, there'd been a series of caves that had been discovered in northern India. And these caves had not been inhabited or even opened for 10,000 years. And inside the caves were cave drawings. And these cave drawings were identical to the being that my mother described. On top of that, you then had the strange scenario that um, there is a series of cave paintings in South Africa in the Drakensberg Mountains called the Junction Shelter. And these cave paintings show beings with large heads, large eyes and exactly the same physical shape that my mother described. So we have people in India 10,000 years ago. We have a little old lady in the Wirral in in UK. And we have people in a cave shelter down in, in, in South Africa showing the same entities. And they seem to be consistent, these entities. And then, of course, we then extrapolate from that, from uh, the person who wrote the foreword to one of my previous books, Whitley Strieber, and his experiences with Greys. And then we have also the similarities between these entities and people such as Alistair Crowley with his, with his being Lamb, uh, which if anybody's ever seen the drawings of Lamb, Effectively, it's a grey, but it's got smaller eyes. Um, so clearly, there is there is some kind of trope here. Is it is it something that's part of us? Are these beings something that are part of our psychology, or are they something greater? Are they something that we create with our collective minds? Is it something that is both created by us, but also uses our brain energy to come through from somewhere else? What I call the egregorial, or what I call the kenoma. Uh, no, sorry, the pleroma, which is from Gnosticism and the idea that there is a universe behind this universe. And as you say in your book, there are then liminal areas whereby these areas overlap. And under certain brain states, be it people taking dimethyltryptamine, uh, other entheogen substances, these doors of perception open and these beings are, are, quite, uh, are perceived. And I thought we needed a collective term for them, everything from fairies to poltergeists to everything else. And that's why I call them egregorials. Oh, very good. May I deepen the examples uh, that you gave, in a sense, by providing one of my own? We, uh, Ben and myself, have been working, uh, when fact, he was 13 when we started this case, and he had only just started to join me and his mom and I had had a long talk about whether he should. And one of the first cases, along with the haunted policeman of Vermont, as we called it, was the uh, flap area, a term we had to coin, in Connecticut. And there was a little boy who was four years old, and one of the many aspects of this case was that this little boy had an invisible friend. And 
the name was Ashwar, A-S-H-W-A-R, we assumed. He said, Ashwar and her people live in trees. So there would be all sorts of uh, minor poltergeist phenomena going on. The people would walk into this room, things that the toys would be floating in the air, and he was playing with Ashwar. Well, one day in 2010, uh, Ben and I were there. We, we'd been uh, filming with, with a crew from New York uh, for one of the abortive um, uh, series that we've been talking about because something always would come in from somewhere and stomp on it. And he had said, oh, my friend Ashwar is out in the tree in front. And we went out and we simply pointed the uh, infrared camera up into the tree. And we got this thing coming down out of the tree. And people can see this on the uh, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno Facebook page. It's, I believe, the second video in. And it's almost like a whitish tadpole thing coming down out of the tree. And then there's a flash and it disappears. I mean, was this Ashwar? Well, some years later, our uh, rather amazing uh, colleague, Shane Searway, who uh, is a co-host of the show from time to time here, uh, he happened to be doing some research on something else, and he ran across the name Ashwar, A-C-H-U-A-R, which was a Central American and South American uh, tribal group who were very involved with trees. They worshipped tree spirits, and they, some of the times they lived in trees and this sort of thing. And, I mean, uh, we... we drew the the, the uh, lines between the dots here, and how could this four-year-old child in Connecticut know about this tribe or this Ashwar? And this being, uh, in ensuing years, we watched it very carefully, it turned out, in our opinion, to be a parasite. Uh, because uh, when the boy uh, passed 10 years old and got to be 12 and 13, it started to tell him to hurt his mother. And this is sort of a, you know, a textbook giveaway that this is something negative. And whether it was the same being, I don't know. But but it's an example of what uh, what you've been saying. And uh, I'm, we're still looking for illustrations, whether it be cave paintings or anything else, of of the, these Ashwar people or or the, or the spirits involved. But uh, there you go, Anthony. Perhaps another uh, arrow in the quiver. Oh no, absolutely, because this is intriguing. Because as you know, in the book, I have a section on um, what's called quasi corporal companions. Yes. Um, and quasi-corporal companions is something that was uh, coined by a guy called Halliwell in a book that was written around about seven or eight years ago. And Halliwell argues that whatever these entities are, children perceive them. Now, I'd argue, and as you know, I'm very keen to do the science of these things. I'm not somebody that just makes these glib statements and says, you have to believe me because I'm channeling it from the planet Thark. I'm somebody <laughs> that actually does does the science. And it is intriguing that um, it could be something to do with myelination of the neurons of the brain because the neurons are isolated by myelination, which is, which is the kind of the, um, the covering, as it were, like you have a, an electrical cable and you'll have the plastic covering. Myelination is like that. But myelination doesn't actually take place until a child is, is six or seven years of age. So could it be that their perception, the perception field within the neurons is broader? So therefore, they can perceive broader areas of reality. But on top of this, there's even something more intriguing is the linkages of the corpus callosum, which is the, 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 the body of nerves that holds together the two sides of the brain. Now, if this is the case, it means effectively that children are almost bicameral, as, as Julian James would argue. So children can open up the, you know, the, 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 their brains are more attuned to opening up these things. Now, if this is the case, I would argue that children have this effect and then it starts again when people develop Alzheimer's because I'd argue that the, the, the disease of Alzheimer's, when it destroys 
the the microtubules within within the neurons does exactly the same thing. And this is why elderly people start developing something called Charles Bonnet syndrome. And of course, Charles Bonnet syndrome is exactly the same thing. People see things like my mother did. Now, these entities, I believe, are always there. And I believe that and we need to do the science of this. And I think your argument that they're a form of plasma and the way they're always linked with electromagnetic energy of some description or another is powerful evidence that they're manipulating this reality in some way to come through. Now, there are there have been papers written on the creation of tulpas, you know, um, I was just going Ale- to mention tulpas, yeah. and Alexander Neal and the work that this wonderful Belgian lady did in the 1920s when she was traveling in um, in Tibet, you know, where they created a thought form and the thought form came through and then started to become independent. Now, if you start looking at the history of mediumship, you know, and you start looking at how mediums manifest um, the, the spirits, you suddenly find that there's a linkage made here. I mean, I'm reminded here of the Joe Fisher case. You know, and Joe Fisher, um, uh, an English guy that was actually living in the States, living in Canada, was was interested in um, manifesting spirits. And there were, there, were, there were spirits that attached themselves to him through a medium. And it was called the Hungry Ghosts. And this this being was talking to him through a spirit medium. But the being was lying to him. The being was pretending to be something that it wasn't. And in your book, you make the very powerful statement where you say, don't believe that the entities you're talking to as a medium is great, great aunt Doris or your grandmother. It's a far more complex phenomenon. That these are beings that are manipulating your world for their own nefarious purposes and have been doing for centuries. The question is, what are their motivations? Why do they do it? And I think your point on parasites, I think, is excellent. They, they, they feed upon our fear. They feed upon our our organ energy to actually use a term that is is much discredited. But Wilhelm Reich and his concept of organ energy, could organ energy be a nutritional thing for these entities that come through to us? Are we, as you say, being farmed? Yes, exactly. Uh, One of the issues, as you bring it up, is that of tulpas. And uh, one does wonder, in the case of Ashwar, whether the boy, despite his uh, youth, was able to produce a thought form that, that literally took um, uh, took form and, and became independent. My personal opinion, just from my experience, and that's really all that, that I have is the experience uh, with things like this, is that they are, uh, in most cases, independent entities already uh, for whom the dinner bell is rung, as it were, by people who are negative. And I wish I could put, you know, I always say, uh, you know, today's paranormal is tomorrow's science. Mm. And uh, one often wonders, um, you know, how can one put a finger on the science of, of the feeding of parasites, if that's indeed what it is. And uh, the, the best way one can, can describe it, in my experience, is simply to say that whatever divides, whatever um, pulls us apart is negative. And that is what they seem to feed upon. Our best remedy for parasitical entities that are farming, as we say, a home or, or, or even something more aggressive, whether it be poltergeist or even the possession phenomenon, is simply to bring in what Ben and I jocularly call the Peter Pan theory, which is think happy thoughts, come together, mm-hmm. laugh. And uh, I, I 
specify in, in one of the one of my books that that in um, you know I got rid of the worst poltergeist I ever dealt with by using a joke book. You know, not, not the normal uh, remedy I would or would suggest in normal circumstances, but under the unique circumstances of this case, it, it did work, and the things were never seen again. So uh, again, uh, and I always tell my boys, don't you know, laugh, but not at each other, because uh, you keep it positive. You know? Well, this so, is remi- this is reminiscent, isn't it? Of sorry for jumping in there, but no, no, it's reminiscent, isn't it, of the Philip case, 1971 in yes. in, in yeah. Toronto whereby um, a, a couple of a group of people got together and collectively created a thought form and they created thought form and the technique they used, as you probably know from the book, which was terribly difficult to get hold of. We managed myself and a couple of associates managed to source a book, yes. the, the original Philip book. And what the group did, um, Mrs. Owen and her husband and the, the little group they worked together in. They managed to create it by actually becoming like children. And this is of significance that initially they kept failing in creating something. But what they did was they literally created a mythical character and they gave him a story and a backstory. He was called Philip Aylesford. Aylesford, he lived in Warwickshire in the the English Midlands. He he was a Catholic nobleman um, during the English Civil War. He, He was an outsider because of that. He then falls in love with a gypsy girl which then alienates him himself from his wife, and then he commits suicide from the battlements of his, his castle. Now, what was intriguing here was that initially they had the backstory, but they couldn't get the entity to manifest because they came to the conclusion that this is what is taking place, that it's a collective thought form that people create. But when they discovered that if they, as they got more friendly with each other, they started to act like children, they started to say silly jokes, they started to sing with each other, childhood rhymes and things. And when that happened... Philip started to manifest. And not only about that, was, but there was actually, they had telekinetic powers and they, they actually managed to make one of the, te- the table they were working on rise up in the air. And this has been filmed. It was in the TV studio in Toronto where the, the table, you could see the table rising. Now, these were not believers in the phenomenon. They were people wanting to understand the power of the human mind. Now, again, you know, this, the, the idea, you know, to be as a child just lightens it up. And in which case, you know, because Philip was whatever it was, there was poltergeist activity and was a benevolent entity. And again, I'm reminded here of how similar it was to Imperator and Rector, which was work that was done by the Society for Psychical Research, um, uh, uh, Stainton Moses, way back in the 1880s and 1890s in London. Then you have in the 1980s, you had the Skoll Experiment. In, in Norfolk in England, where they again seem to collectively create communicants. Now, but the interesting thing is these communicants identified themselves as being a research group somewhere else trying to communicate with, with us, as was similar in, in, in the Imperator and Rector case. But again, you and I would argue, but the, if these entities can't necessarily be, be trusted, they will manifest themselves in whatever way they can to gain the security of the people that they're working with. And again, if anybody takes the opportunity to read the Joe Fisher book, it's intriguing because towards the end, Fisher becomes convinced that whatever the entities are that are playing with him and he killed himself in the end, he committed suicide, you know, which is fascinating. It is. It is. One of the, uh, let's take this a little bit deeper if that's even possible. Uh, 
One of the issues that's come up in a, a new organization called the uh, CCRI, the uh, the um, Consciousness and Contact Research Institute, organized by the great Ray Hernandez. Oh, I know, uh, Ray. Yeah, yeah. I know, Okay, Ray. good. Um, actually, uh, I'm going to stick my neck out here that you should be involved. Uh, they, in they, they have. They invited me. I, I was I, right at the very start. Ray contacted me, a lovely guy, and I had a, a, a series of Skype chats with a lot of them. And there's a, a friend of mine, Mariam Abadi, who, who knows them all as well. And the work they're doing is extraordinary. Um, we're taking a very slightly different angle to them. They're, they're tending to take the idea that the entities are actually alien entities, whereas yeah. we're taking a far more psychological and a far more careful approach, my little research group. But there's overlap between the two groups. Uh, and well, that's it. Well, Ben is on the advisory board and I'm on the research committee with, with, with many of the people you spoke with. Uh, they seem to be willing to be guided more toward our point of view. The uh, one of one of the issues is uh, that of non-human intelligences. Okay, uh, that's all fine, but there may be other interactions that that are with perfectly human intelligences of different forms. Mm. If this multiverse uh, approach is correct, and we're dealing with whether other facets of ourselves, as we call it, uh, or uh, some of the the uh, people I dealt with, uh, the, the neighbors, as we I call them in Dancing Past the Graveyard, who seem to be perfectly human but living in parallel realities, uh, who don't speak English the same way we do, who don't speak English at all, uh, some of whom are entirely non-verbal. I mean, you name it, and, and the variations seem to be there. Uh, well, your, so, children, your children experiment, you know, in Ottawa, you know, with the children oh, that yes. we saw, you know, or the, yeah. your, your case study saw, you know, clearly to me, we are dealing here with with probably two different things. And you and I are both on the same uh, same page in terms of the idea of if you ever it's multiverse theory is correct and there's more and more evidence to suggest it may be. And if this is the case, then there are multiverses and there's billions of versions of you and I having this conversation. There are subtly different universes that overlap on each other. And in which case, when we pick up, as you again say, and again, I've said this in my books that, you know, when people claim they're reincarnated and they are they are sensing a previous life in India or wherever, what they're actually doing is attuning into a singular consciousness that it's experiencing itself subjective, which is all of us. You know, and in your book you make, and it was wonderful, I'd never realized in your book you make this wonderful phrase about, in, in the biblical phrase, as, you know, to, that, um, to, love, to, to, to love your neighbor as yourself. But the thing is, it is yourself. You know, we are a single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. Then if you plan that through the multiverses, then you have something to do with quantum physics. You have the idea of entanglement. You have the idea, for example, and I use the science of this in my next book, which I'm working on at the moment, I'm going to be bringing up on this. But the idea is entanglement, which we can't go into detail now, but it's a known quantum physics effect. You know, and again, I seriously do the science on this. I don't just use the terms. I do understand. Well, understand as best as anybody possibly can what quantum physics means. But in terms of entanglement, if you take two subatomic particles and you, you put them in the same state for a period of time, they can communicate instantaneously across vast distances. Now, David, Professor David Bohm, the Anglo-American physicist uh, in the 1980s, David Bohm argued uh, at Birkbeck College, he argued that... All particles are actually one particle. 
And we're just seeing it in different ways. You know, as uh, Richard Feynman once jokingly said, why do electrons all look the same? They all look the same because from our point of view, there's countless numbers of them. From their point of view, it's just one moving at infinite speed. So the first billionth of a second, trillionth of a second of the Big Bang, every piece of matter that exists now was entangled with every other piece of matter. So when the Big Bang takes place, we're in this scenario whereby everything was entangled and that entanglement continues. And of course, we then have the illusion of what we believe is space. But what is space if there's no objects in space? Does space disappear, as Ernest Mack argued, that if there's only two objects in space and they're near each other, then one disappears. Where does the, does the space around go? These are deep philosophical questions and questions that suggest the unitariness. Now, there is growing belief now. Again, research being done seriously, like close to you in Ontario. There's the the Perimeter Institute with people like Craig Hogan. They are looking for the pixelation of space. They're arguing that space is information and that it works holographically. Now, what do we know about holograms? Holographic image, if it's smashed, each piece of the holographic image has a denuded image of the whole picture. So again, we have what David Bohm would call enfoldment. So everything is enfolded. And what we need to do is to start realizing that our science is great. Our science works incredibly well. The, the, our understanding of quantum physics works so well. But it's not complete. It's nowhere even near complete. There is a paradox used in science, and it's the idea that every civilization believes that its science is the pinnacle of science. But of course it's not. What's the statistical chance of us existing in a world where we know 95% of what's happening, when in fact we know 94% of the universe is missing? So clearly we're suffering from a severe craze here of hubris in saying that we understand. We are like medieval schoolmen with their epicycles trying to explain the retrograde motion of the outer planets. We have these mathematical structures that explains things, but they only explain partially. We have two complete different realities. We have quantum physics and cosmology. The, the, the maths don't even work between the two. You plug in this, this, the, 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 the calculations that you use for quantum mechanics and plug them into um, Einstein's relativity. They don't work. They, they bring out infinities, which suggests that there is, as Einstein argued, there are hidden variables and that a deeper level of reality. Sense comes back and the whole quantum physics world which seems totally crazy is because we've gone down this path and we're too scared to move away anymore but we know that things that we've experienced we know things that people report to us we know these effects are real we know precognition patterns so in which case let's stop let's be real scientists not people suffering from scientism let's (laughs) let's start looking at the facts Let's look at the empirical evidence from experience, empirical. Let's look at what people tell us and just follow, as scientists have done years gone by, just follow where the information tells you. And don't, for God's sake, just play this game of saying it's an hallucination. You know, nobody knows what a hallucination is. Oliver Sacks' last book was about hallucinations. We don't know what hallucinations are. So to just categorize something, it's what I call the label theory of science. We've labeled it. We've given it a nice name. Let's give it a nice Latin or Greek name. It'll sound even more impressive. But what it means is it's like idiopathic um, in medicine. Somebody said, I've got idiopathic epilepsy. 
what do you what do you mean idiopathic idiopathic means we haven't got the vaguest idea we don't know what causes it and that's what we're doing we have idiopathic science at the moment there's a new term i'll probably use that one oh well done well, very good. Well, we're going to take our mid-show break here. It's unofficial because we're not in the studio today. However, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM uh, in Rhode Island's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And we're simulcasting today on TuneIn.com and the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live with our incredible guest, one of our favorite, probably our favorite, Anthony Peake, uh, coming to us from the UK via Skype today. So let's uh, get back to our discussion, and, and why don't we start with a question from a listener, uh, Anthony, and this is, um, uh, we have a very uh, a faithful listener in Bogota, Colombia, who sends in uh, questions uh, that are very, very incisive. Almost every week, he's almost like a, an honorary uh, guest co-host. So here's a question for Anthony. Uh, what is really happening with alien abductions? Do you think they create creating hybrids, if they are creating hybrids, and if so, why? That's a bit of a shift from our discussion. Yeah, it is. Um, my opinion on alien abductions is the far more complex than that. For instance, if you start to look at the, as a sociologist, the way I'd look at alien abductions is what are the typologies? What are the similarities? And the similarities of alien abductions, you can take them straight back to shamanic traveling. Shamanic traveling, shamans, when they go into the shamanic world, one of the things that happens to them is they get dismembered. Creatures will come and will tear into them, will will operate on them. So this is something that goes back throughout the centuries. You then have the, the people being stolen and the children being stolen by the little people in Ireland and in, 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 in Celtic Scotland. People get abducted by, by the fairies, by the, by the fairy folk, by the gentry. So... It then continues and you carry this forward and then you'll get the same tropes occurring within people who have encounters when they take dimethyltryptamine. They take DMT, the mind altering substance known as an entheogen, which is to find the God within, which is an interesting aside point. But effectively, when people do this, they again have the dismemberment idea where they get they get tortured, they get picked upon, they get watched. Now, the question I have to ask is this. And it's a billion dollar question in terms of these experiments that supposedly they're doing. Supposedly, the grey aliens or the aliens or whatever we want to call them since the 1950s have been abducting farmers from Midwest, taking them into the machine and cutting them open in order to find out what's going on inside. Now, either these guys are incredibly thick because they seem to be cutting people open all the time and still don't seem to discover anything. They don't have fMRI scanners. They don't have ways of scanning a body, yet supposedly they can travel across the vast distances of interstellar space to hassle a farmer in Idaho. You know, it makes no sense. So then we're saying, is there some kind of hybridization taking place? Well, there could be. There could be that for some reason, genetically, they've gone down a different path. But I think they're far closer to us than this. I recall, you know, in, in, in Sufi Islamic teaching about the idea of the jinn. Mm-hmm. And the jinn abduct people. And what are the jinn made of? If you read in the Quran and you read in in the in in the the, um, the, 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 the commentaries and everything else, they're made of smokeless fire. What's smokeless fire? Plasma. Exactly. Okay. Now again, we know that the, the jinn will steal you and will take you to somewhere else. So again, to me, this is 
And as they say, you know, these in the Quran, I think they say, you know, these things are as close as your jugular vein. They're part of us. We are a greater consciousness and they are part of us. So to just simplify it again and again, I'm always fascinated as a ufologist. And I've been a ufologist in my, you know, following ufology since the mid 1960s. So I do know my UFO law, UFO law. It seems to be that the UFOs cleverly culturally follow whatever our culture is, whatever our culture is about to develop. They seem to do it like, you know, we had in the late 1890s. We had the airship flaps in the United States. Those did a show on that. Okay, because it's interesting, isn't it? They were supposedly Germans. And when they were asked where they came from, they'd say they were German. In medieval times, they said they came from Magonia, uh, the the, the, the concept of um, Jacques Vallée. Then you take it forward. And as they take it forward, they seem to change from airships to, you know, we have the trauma of the Second World War and the burgeoning scientific age and the burgeoning space age. And suddenly they're spaceships. They seem to morph into things. In medieval times, they they were, were people from, you know, sort of the fairy folk again. So it seems that they they know us very well. And then if they're from a timeless place that is part of this greater universe, they can switch where they want to be, what they want to look like. And they're playing games with us. It's a game. You know, the machine elves of Terence McKenna. What do they do? They mock people. They're having fun with people. So we expect to be abducted. And because of our sh- traditions of shamanism and everything else, we ex- expect them to cut us open. So that's what they do. It's, it's my idea. Anyway, that's my thought. Well, it makes perfect sense uh, all the way down to the uh, car key gnomes that people often you know, will say, well, can't find their keys. But we often run into that little glitches in, in the uh, flow of the multiverse, in a sense, or the, the world families. You put your car keys down on the, the kitchen table and then you turn around and they're at the other end of the table or are gone completely. I mean, these little little things that uh, we uh, will shortly forget about or, you know, one of those things and all this business. So so uh, all the way to what you've been describing, Anthony. Uh, well, it could be, the, couldn't it? Just very quickly coming in. Sure. Here, just very quickly. You know, if you look into quantum physics, there's a concept called the collapse of the wave function. Absolutely. And effectively, the act of observation collapses a a, a wave, a probability wave, not even a real wave, but a mathematical probability wave into a point particle. Which effectively means your act of observation is creating your visual world and your physical world around you by collapsing the wave function from a myriad of a myriad of outcomes. Your observation reduces it down to one reality, but all the other realities are still there. So your keys could be there one minute and not there the next because you're just flipping inside realities. Yes. One of the many wonderful aspects of your book, which I have uh, right here, uh, Hidden hidden Universe. Uh, okay, there we are. Uh, it has uh, an excellent section in the beginning on, uh, I would call it sort of comparative theologies and uh, the philosophy of mind. And uh, one of our, our principles that we always talk about and talk about in Turning Home is that uh, at some point our remote ancestors uh, thought they were talking to supernatural beings. And uh, certainly f- fills right in uh, the, 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 uh, many of the gaps uh, of, of uh, our historical uh, experience and certainly f- is uh, consistent with what we're talking about today. And when we have supernatural beings, one can argue that this experience, whatever it was, uh, was the origin of 
both the paranormal and religion, which are supposed to be at such odds, are, are really science and religion, because had there been no questions to be asked, uh, would there have been a science? And certainly would there have been religion? So perhaps the uh, the paranormal or the unexplained, at least, is the mother of both science and religion. So, Well, this would be, wouldn't it, Julian James? You know, Julian James, yes. the bicameral mind, you know, 1969, yeah. 1970, you know, and he argued that if you look at um, ancient Greek writings, specifically things like Homer's The Iliad, you will find that there's no in, there's no internal narrative taking place in the characters. The characters, all their actions are the actions of gods. The gods tell them what to do and they do it. And this is again to do with the idea that the brain was unicameral at the time. So effectively, our our inner voice was interpreted. We all have this inner voice, the narrative of our lives. But because of the way the brain was structured at that time, we heard that inner voice as an alien voice that was talking to us and guiding us. Mm -hmm. Um, And in which case, you know, this the whole idea of the supernatural. It's all basically it is religion. It's all looking through the veil and trying to understand what seems to be a completely confusing universe. You know, one of the uh, interesting uh, uh, facets of this uh, when it comes to religion is the the religious groups that uh, can accept the idea of um, alien life forms and things of this kind. And we presented a program. We've only presented it twice, but it's had a tremendous reception. And it's called uh, uh, God, Religion, and the Aliens or, or the Paranormal. And uh, looking at the different groups, and I've looked at, as you know, I have a seminary background. And, you know, for a hundred years, I was, you know, studying theology. And uh, if you look at the groups that 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 are more open-minded about this, uh, it's the um, the Muslims. And the Eastern Orthodox Christians, which is kind mm-hmm. of ironic, because they're not always the best of friends uh, throughout history. So you you have uh, uh, groups that that can that would be able to welcome alien life forms if you're from another planet, and and you know you, you don't have the black spot theory of original sin, where you had to be child of Adam in order to need to be saved and baptized. And all. The theology uh, would be very acceptable to the Orthodox and the Muslims. You could bring them into your faith without having to worry about any of that. So, uh, but they all have ancient traditions, as you know, uh, Tony, of of these uh, contacts with flying things. I've, I've counted over 300 examples in the Bible alone of uh, objects that are that are flying, hovering, landing, or otherwise being active, and that not uh, according to the technology of the time necessarily. So um, I'm wondering, too, uh, you mentioned DMT. Now, to bring in another uh, wrinkle to this, this narrative, how much do you think of the... Um, uh, remote ancestors' experiences were on account of hallucinogen- hallucinogens. Now, I've had shamans tell me that, uh, particularly from South America, they use DMT and things of this kind, and that it's perfectly legitimate. It doesn't mean they were imagining things. It's just that they deepened their experience. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, would uh, the use of drugs delegitimize any sort of experience of this kind, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I wrote a whole book on this subject. Um, I know, that's why I asked the question. And <laughs> I, I am particularly intrigued by this and the role of entheogens in terms of, of contact with, with entities and also within religious beliefs. Because we know many, many years ago, John Allegro 
wrote a very, very famous book in the late 1960s, I think it was, where he, he claimed that, was it mascara? It was, it was one of the hallucinogenic substances was the, the prime mover of even Christianity, even the start of Christianity. Now, if you start looking back into a lot of the traditions of even the Ab- uh, Abrahamic religions, you see evidence that there could be hallucinogenic substances going on. For instance, one of the things I found quite extraordinary is the symbolism of things like the burning bush and the idea about the burning bush. Now, was that Syrian rue? And if it was Syrian rue, it would have been hallucinogenic. Um, the symbolism of the ladder and everything else as well. So that's within within Judaism. You then start moving into the use of substances in order to get into altered states of consciousness. Um, myself and a group of friends, we are planning, or a group of associates and academics, were planning to reproduce. We did an event called Plato's Cave, Escaping Plato's Cave, which we did in the UK last April. Now, one of my books has just come out in Greek, in the Greek language. My late, this book that you're showing now has just come out in Greek. And my first book will be coming out in Greek in the spring. And my Greek publisher is very keen for us to continue with some of the implications of the hidden universe. And what we're going to do is we're going to be recreating the myth of Plato's cave in what I believe from my research, it was the cave that Plato actually placed Plato's cave. Now, Plato himself was um, probably a member of the Eleusian mysteries. So therefore, he, his belief systems were based upon this, these mystery cults of the ancient Greeks. You look at the mystery cults of the ancient Greeks, you find that it's hallucinogenic substances. They're talking about a substance called uh, kaikion. They're also talking about a substance called ambrosia, you know, the food of the gods. Now, there is a clear argument to say that these substances were hallucinogenic, in which case when people go into altered states of consciousness, they find the god within, the entheogen, and that allows them to, to appre- appreciate and apprehend the noetic within within the world and they move into an altered state of mental consciousness whereby they can they can attune with gods now we know from ancient traditions like you know in north america there were the ancient the native americans traditions like the sioux you know where we where they had the the sun ceremony which was in that movie a man called horse many years ago where they would pull people up by pins and they do that because the pain would be so great, somebody would be in an altered state of consciousness. We know with flagellation and flagellants in the Middle Ages would do this to get into altered states of consciousness. But the native, a lot of the Native American peoples also had things like peyote, you know, sort of they could take peyote and go with altered states of consciousness. We also know about the Sonarian toad, which is a toad that when it's distressed, it excretes something called 5-MeO-DMT which can bring about profound, profound godlike sensations where literally friends of mine who've taken 5-MeO-DMT say that when you take it, you're at one with the universe. You really realize that the universe is a singularity and you are part of it. So there are profound religious experiences. You then get down to Latin America and you get down to the indigenous cultures of the, Am- uh, the Am- Amazonian um, river, river areas. And suddenly you find extraordinary things taking place there. And I'll give one example of this was I think it was a guy called Michael Hartman. It wasn't Michael Hartman. I can't remember now. Um, but it was one of the researchers and he was down there and he asked. They were really confused because I don't know if you know that they have a substance down there called ayahuasca. Oh, yes. Yeah. OK, so ayahuasca is a mixture of two plants. Banisteria, Banisteria, uh, 
Banasteriapsis, uh, Banasteriapsis capi, and Psychiatra viridas. Okay, the two plants, the the the, uh, the Banasteris is a vine. Okay, and the 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 um, the Psychiatra viridas is um, is a, is a plant. Now there are fifty thousand I've heard different varieties of plants in the Amazonian de- uh, Amazonian forests. These two substances together, when they're put together, they mix them together in a particular way and they brew this thing called ayahuasca. Okay. now the Psychiatra viridas contains DMT, it contains dimethyltryptamine. The Banisteriapsis capi contains a substance called harmaline. Okay. so what is really taking place here? Well, apparently, if you took the leaves of the 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 uh, the the DMT plant, the Psychiatra viridas and ate them. However many you ate and however much you took into your body DMT, there would never you'd never have an hallucination. The reason being that the stomach is stomach immediately lines itself with called monoamine oxidase. Monoamine oxidase, MAO, is the substance that lines the stomach and stops the 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 psychiatric substance, the psychometric substance traveling across into the blood. Okay. however, Banisteriapsis capi contains this harmaline stuff which is an MAO inhibitor, which means that when it goes in together, one of the substances in the mixture stops the body from its ability to stop the hallucinogenic substance. Now, when the the scientists looked at this, they said, how do these guys know this? How could they possibly know? And they asked the shamans and the shamans said, that when originally we, we used to go shamanic traveling, because, of course, shamans can get into these altered states of consciousness by rhythmic dancing and everything else, or they, they, they experience temporal lobe epilepsy or whatever we want to understand how people get into altered states of consciousness. When they went into those, they met the spirits of the plants. And the spirits of the plants literally took the shamans into the jungle and said, you pick this plant and this plant and you put them together and you can allow normal people to experience what you experience. So what is the spirit of the plants here? What is the entities that are communicating here? I'd argue it's exactly the same. It's, you know, because we know down in the, there's the Santa Deum uh, church down in Brazil where their sacrament is DMT. So clearly there is something far more going on and it goes right through history. This interface and an excellent book on this. Paul Devereaux wrote an amazing oh, book Paul. on this. You know, yes. Paul, he's a great guy, isn't he? Absolutely. And Paul, and Paul Devereaux wrote a book on it. I think it's called The Long Journey. And in it, he describes and he describes such things as I've just mentioned now about the links to Kaikion in terms of the ancient Greek mystery cults. And in ter- terms of that, the Syrian rue. And you carry it right forward, right across. And I think the main item here is the pineal gland. And I think and again, just to come back to my first point, did you know that the ancient Hebrew name of the place where um, they had the vision of the ladder, where Jacob had the vision of the ladder, was called Pineal. I did not know that. Yeah. All the years look, in the seminary, they never told me. You you look it up. The work, the work. There's a guy uh, that you must get on the show called Rabbi Joel Baxt. He lives in um, uh, near uh, oh, somewhere in Colorado, near Colorado Springs. Um, I, can, I could probably remember the town if I thought about it. Something spring near Colorado Springs, anyway, and he's written an amazing book called the the um, the Dragon in the Torah, hmm. 
And in this, he describes by going into the Torah and going deeply into the descriptions of the Torah, you can actually discover they're talking about DMT. Wow. And they're talking about DMT and the spirit of DMT, the dragon spirit. Because if you know, if you've read the, read the books of uh, various people, they seem to manifest as snakes. People have snake experiences. And the snakes are symbolic of DMT. And they're also symbolic of the caduceus. They're symbolic of the twin snakes going up. And if you look at the caduceus, what do you see? You see twin snakes going up. And at the top, you have two wings. And in between the two wings is a circle. That's the pineal gland. The two wings are the, men, are the, the sides of the brain. And the two snakes going up are the Ida and Pingala of, of Kundalini experiences. Okay. Symbol of so, the medical profession. Pardon? The symbol of the medical profession. It's the symbol of the medical profession because, of course, it's Hermes, isn't it? It's Hermes stick. Yes. But clearly there's also symbolism within, if you start looking into the symbolism you find within the Masons, Masonic symbolism and everything else as well, you read the writings of people like Manley Hall, you'll discover that this is a secret that, that's been known. The role of the pineal gland, the role of entheogens, the role of endogenously generated dimethyltryptamine. And I believe it's stimulated and it's simulated and it's created from melatonin within the pineal gland. And it creates an internal substance which we call metatonin, which is endogenous DMT. And this even comes down to what's in our folklore, which we characterize as, as the vessel of the memory of the human race. Uh, I, when you mentioned the toad, all I could think of is, oh, well, kiss the toad or the frog and it turns into a prince. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very well based in something that occurred in the, hum in the human uh, experience. So, uh, Anthony, we're almost out of time. Tell us again about, and I, we're going to do a bunch of shows here because we just we can't stop. We have to keep going. Uh, about your books, your website, where people can find out more. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Um, my website, website is anthonypeak.com. Um, I'm not as active on there as I should be, but you can, if you want autographed books, you can get them on there. But if you want my books, just you can order from bookshops, you can order them on Amazon They're or everywhere. Yeah. Um, also, three of my books are now, with me reading them, are in Audible. Unfortunately, this book will be coming out on Audible. The Hidden Universe will be coming out on Audible in about two or three months' time. But for some reason, that publisher didn't want me to read the book. Uh, they wanted somebody else to read it, which slights cause a contention with me, but it's one of those things. Because mm. um, I know my readers prefer to have me reading my books. But it's one of their things. Um, so you can get in Audible. You can get them on Kindle. They're in ebook. They're, they're every every variety you can find them. Um, I'm also very, very active on Facebook. You'll find me on Facebook. Um, I do my own interviews on Facebook as well with guests. And I must get you, Paul, as, as a future guest on here, by the way. this I must be talking to you. I'll talk to you privately about this. Yes. Um, you can I do live interviews on Facebook every every Monday. I also do every month. Um, which you've been on, and also an interview you and Paul were on a few years ago, um, which uh, which uh, it's called Consciousness Hour. Um, also now I'm much more active on YouTube. I have my own YouTube channel, yeah. and I'm uploading all my previous interviews on there, so you, you've got a documentation of all, all the people that have been involved in my work over the years as well, because the most important thing for me is I believe in the diktat of Marcello Trui, the skeptic, Extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. Okay, it wasn't Carl Sagan, by the way. It's called the Sagan statement, but it wasn't Carl Sagan. It was Marcelo Trui. He nicked it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Ah, oh, there we are. And to me, that's the most important thing. I will always do the science. I start with the science and then make conclusions or at least suggestions from the science, because that's where it has to start. Because it is only by using the science that we're going to change this paradigm. 
and have science start looking at phenomenon like we've been discussing now. And there are more and more scientists and more and more researchers coming to me now. And they are coming to me, you know, really serious researchers, postdoctoral researchers in subjects, because they're starting to pick up my books and going, why the hell is this guy's books in the new age range? He's writing stuff that is absolutely mind blowing and factually correct. And I always say to people, if you have problems with my science, great, just let me know. If you think I've misinterpreted the twin slit experiments, if you think I've, I don't understand Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, if you think I don't understand Pauli's exclusion principle, tell me and we can debate it. But don't just criticize me uh, without approaching me and discussing it. If I've got something wrong, I'm a big boy. I'm not a believer in anything. So if I've got something wrong, just tell me and I'll amend my ideas. Precisely. Uh, well said. I couldn't add anything better to that than what you said, Anthony. Anthony, we're going to move on to our announcements. You can stick with us. Uh, but thank you for an incredible show. It, 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 you're not only ma- amazing, you're inspiring. So I, I think that that's a, a promise of many, many, many uh, more frequent shows to come. All right. Uh, so uh, let's begin our announcements. Uh, with any luck, uh, COVID-wise, we plan to speak at the New England Parafest on April 10th and 11th, 2021, in Kittery, Maine, and we will do a live broadcast of this show with a panel of the speakers on Sunday the 11th. More information will be forthcoming. Uh, we are working on a new book, better than myself. Uh, the addition, uh, additional authors, uh, co-authors, uh, Shane Sirway and Alexander Petikoff. Uh, that'll be out later next year. Uh, Behind the Paranormal 3, Uneasy Skies. We uh, I belong to MUFON, it's the only thing I belong to, and uh, we speak at UFO conferences, and we thought we ought to at least do the, the courtesy of writing a book on the subject uh, that's based on our own UFO experiences and those of our show guests over the years. Now, check out our current books, along with those of our other co-hosts at the uh, show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, where you can also find more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, along with some of our 900-plus Free recorded shows from our 12-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, past shows, uh, again, back to late 2009, are also available on the major podcast platforms and apps, including YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Uh, and we are still migrating our site over to a new host, and we plan to have all 900-plus shows uh, uploaded there eventually. Just sort of stay tuned. Uh, there are links also to several charities we have adopted on the show, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, uh, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, and Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, along with special shows and podcasts. So next week, uh, we uh, Ben will be back, I hope. Uh, December 6th, we'll welcome back uh, the Hudson Valley-based paranormal researcher and author Linda Zimmerman for a look at animal reactions to UFOs, something that has not been well studied. Uh, we leave you today with a quote from someone who came up in the show today. Uh, the, or, I was going to bring him up. The 18th century ph- uh, German philosopher Immanuel Kant, we are not rich by what we possess, but by what we can do without. I'm Paul Eno. Uh, please... Um, Uh, Well, I'll give you best of Ben. He'll be back next week, and thank you for joining us. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.